One, two, three, four. Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. So much of this podcast has focused on the intersection of technology and dispute resolution. And it is hard to speak about this or the broader convergence between law and technology without also thinking about legal education. How we educate law students will necessarily impact the extent of these intersections. Current law students are the lawyers of the future. They will be required to lead and innovate within the context of increasing interconnection between technology and dispute systems. It's also the start of a new academic year, one that is unparalleled considering all the uncertainty surrounding the pandemic and society's ongoing reckoning with racial injustice. So to explore the future of legal education and technology in greater depth, I have two exceptional guests joining me. First is Hari Osafsky, the new Dean of Northwestern Law School and one of the world's leading scholars in climate change research. I have spoken with Hari on a few occasions, and I can attest to her thoughtfulness and leadership, her humility, and her willingness to engage with and support interdisciplinary approaches in education. Also, considering the UN Climate Change Report was only released a couple days ago, I also used this unique opportunity to explore how Hari given her extensive expertise in this field, thinks about climate change in the present and for the future. My second guest is a very dear friend, Allison Carroll. Allison is the co-director of Northwestern's nationally ranked Center on Negotiation and Mediation. Allison is also a self-described tech-curious legal educator, and she's constantly innovating and experimenting with the intersection of legal education and technology. So I am just so excited for this conversation, and we're going to dive right in. Hari Osofsky, Allison Carroll, welcome to Convergence. I am incredibly excited for this conversation. You both are pioneers and titans of law. So there's so much we have to talk about. And I just want to thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having us. We're delighted to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So the first question could be the most important question. Uh, And I wanted to just go back a few years, Hari and Allison at 14 years old. Where were you in the world and what were you aspiring to become? So um, I, I, when I was 14 years old, I was in the middle of transitioning um, to grown up in Kansas, which was a big transition. And I, at that time, I don't know that I was one of those kids who had this very clear sense of I am, I am going to do um, a particular thing with my life, but, but I already was exposed to 
the idea of, of, of having a, a duty in life to, to, to try to positively contribute. And so I was involved in a number of different kinds of civic related things at that age, uh, from political things to community service to sort of starting a Students Against Drunk Driving chapter. And I think it, that commitment to trying to leave the world a little better than I found it was probably all fairly locked in um, at that age. Yeah, well, I don't want to preempt future questions I have for you, but I feel like what you're doing right now is very much in furtherance of that, and especially on the environmental front. Thank you for that. Allison, what, what, what were you doing at 14? What were you aspiring to be? So at age 14, I was just learning about social justice activities. So I was joining Amnesty International um, and joining Students Against Homelessness and trying to find my way. I don't think I was nearly as clear as Hari at that age, but it was... Um, just two years later that I first learned about mediation. And I think that it was at that very early age that I realized that dispute resolution was something I wanted to do. I'm the daughter of divorced parents and just thought that the mediation process was a very nice structured approach to dealing with disputes. And then of course, at that young age, being very idealistic. I still wear rose-colored glasses a lot of the times, but very idealistic, thought that mediation would be the way to save the world. <laughs> so, so naive. No, not naive at all. <laughs> Idealism and optimism at a young age is like, it, it, it is the seeds for growth and for developments. I'm fortunate enough that like I was semi-optimistic at that age but if I wasn't I'm just like things would be so much more difficult in how I engaged with and related to the world if I was more pessimistic about things so I think both of you have a very rosy and optimistic lens from that time in your life and having spoken with you in previous interactions like I, I, I very much hear that today as well so thank you I wanted to talk about this mysterious thing that will soon be clarified called the TRB retrospective. Allison, you and a few others organized the first ever, to my knowledge, TRB retrospective. Hari gave the keynote address, and I was fortunate enough to facilitate some of the conversations. Uh, so Allison, since you were one of the leaders of uh, the TRB, could you just help us understand what that was and what the purpose was behind its its creation and rollout. Sure. Uh, so TRB stands for Thorn Rose Bud Retrospective. And it's really the brainchild of Cat Moon at Vanderbilt, who then asked Dennis Kennedy at Michigan State and I to join her in putting this together. The idea being that we have to make the most of this moment as we were feeling like we were coming out of the pandemic and looking at the fall semester, thinking about what have we learned in the past 18 months that can inform how we now move forward instead of just going back to the way things were. 
I think the other purpose of it was to model this act of reflection. So it's something that we all value and teach our students as having value. And it was nice to you know practice what you preach. Having Hari come in and do the keynote at the beginning of the morning, I think really set the stage for us to reframe these things from challenges to opportunities and the context in which we had just, you know, what we had just gone through and where we are headed as a leader in this field and just joining Northwestern. It was really inspiring um, to have her come and talk with us. So I'll, I'll turn it over to her to hear a little bit about what she thought of the TRB and uh, maybe what the purpose was from her perspective. Thank you, Allison. I, I, first of all, just thought it was phenomenal. I mean, I, I feel so lucky to be joining you as a colleague at Northwestern. And I thought that the work that you did collaboratively with, with Kat and the other colleagues really um, was so needed. I believe deeply that the best organizations are, are learning organizations and the best leadership is, is learning leadership. And I became a dean, right? I, I was talking earlier at age 14, I started developing this, this sense of, of wanting to make the world better. I decided in my 20s that, that actually that was my career goal. And, and it, it, you know, sounds sim- simple and optimistic, um, but, but to leave the world a little better than I found it and do work that I felt meaningful. And it's, it's been a gut check ever since. And And so I became an academic leader four years ago because I think we're at this moment of profound change in which technology and globalization and the need for cross-cutting knowledge and the need for fundamental progress and diversity, equity, and inclusion, those are shaping the practice of law, raising big legal issues. And law schools have been struggling, as has has legal practice, to to navigate their way through this. And so, you know, the, the events of the last year and a half, the intersectional crises, the combination of a, of a public health crisis with a racial justice reckoning with, with deep social polarization, those, those things have accelerated those transitions and exacerbated inequality. And so to me, what was so critically important about that TRB discussion is it, is it really created an opportunity in a very thoughtful way? And, and I thought the structure of it in which we moved back and forth between small and large group discussions with, with various prompts really created the opportunity for us to do that kind of thinking about what do we learn from all of this? What do we learn from the crises of this year against this backdrop of change? And so I really just want to applaud you and the organizers for um, creating that that space, which I think is something we need to be doing more broadly. Absolutely. And I'm just holding on to everything you shared, especially that the best organizations are learning organizations. And with all that we've experienced and are experiencing, especially with the uncertainty for the future and the challenges of the past, I feel like having these conversations between different disciplines and between different schools, because the more perspectives that are represented, the more we can learn from one another. I just, I found that to be really valuable for me. And I guess both of you have mentioned kind of like things that we need to learn from. And I know in the group I was facilitating and with you, Hari, that our group and a few other groups in the large um, report out section mentioned several times the need to reassess legal education. And so I was actually a bit curious on how 
this reassessment could be implemented. And Hari, since you are the incoming dean, current dean now of Northwestern Law School, maybe maybe you could jumpstart things there with, with ideas you have. Absolutely, happy to do that. Um, so one of the things that I think is crucial to seeding innovation is the, the process that you use for getting there. So I, I am a deep believer that when we people, when we bring voices to the table to have these conversations, we end up with better ideas that people feel better about. And so um, it, I'm, I've, I'm creating two different new things at, at Northwestern to try to help us have these conversations. Um, one is that I'm creating a new associate dean role, um, the associate dean of innovation and um, partnerships. And, and that's to create a, a role that's explicitly about helping us build on our relationships across the university um, with individual colleges, with participating in large university-wide initiatives and societal problems, um, and then partnering with some of the other leaders in, in the law school and, and others in the law school to um, really connect that into our external multi-stakeholder partnerships. Because a lot of the, the most important work that universities help advance on major societal problems involve broad, multidisciplinary people, but then in partnership with key stakeholders um, in, in external to universities, and sometimes even more than one university involved. The second thing that I'm doing is creating a new working group that will include faculty, students, staff, and alumni that is really focused on what can we learn from the pivots of this past year and a half against the backdrop of change of a changing society. And so I'm really excited to, to sort of hear the ideas that that will come out of this working group um, and, and in collaboration with this, this new associate dean role. So those are two structural things that, that we're doing at Northwestern to try to really make sure that we intentionally have these conversations this year. Because, you know, one of the things that's so exciting about joining this law school is it's, it's a longtime leader in innovation. And so we have this opportunity through thoughtful reflection to, to get to, to think about what is our next chapter in that innovation. Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to Northwestern, I feel like the city of Chicago is also has historically been at the forefront of innovation. So I, I just I feel like you're particularly well situated for that. And I obviously have a soft spot for Chicago. I, I think it's, it's one of the best cities in, in the world. So, Allison, we we talked about this reassessing piece. And from my perspective, you know, I, I always think it could be because of what I do as a profession. I think this piece around listening and dialogue and, and conversation is so important to tease out what needs to be reassessed and kind of like the hierarchy of reassessment through dialogue with different stakeholders. So for you in, in your current role, I'm, I'm a bit curious about how the ADR field can play a role in both reassessing within academic institutions, but also in like in broader society, what role ADR has there? Uh, you're hearing me pause because I think you're right that the ADR field seems like a natural partner in this, right? We teach curiosity and listening and the 
the importance and the value and the power of creativity and thinking outside the box and the ability to reimagine situations, taking problems and working through them through process, uh, very intentional structured processes to identify ways that we can solve those problems that don't just get the problem solved, but meet people's needs and uh, more holistically, right? More deeply. And the ADR field, I'm John, uh, Professor John Landy has been working on a project, uh, the theory of change and dispute resolution. And it's been, yes. yeah, <laughs> and it's trying to help our field identify what we need to do, what we need to do within our field to recognize these incredible moments that we're facing and the possibilities. And I'm afraid sometimes that our field is a little stuck because for so long, we positioned ourselves as the alternative. We fought for our legitimacy by, by, by fighting for this truth of these truths, such as mediators need to be facilitative and not evaluative. Mediation is confidential, that the system needs these, these alternative ways of approaching the resolution of legal disputes, disputes more generally. But in doing that, we sort of carved out this narrow path or this narrow definition of what it is that we do that's keeping us, I think, from innovating ourselves. And it has kept us from then embracing, I think, some of the innovation and technology that we were forced to embrace in the past 18 months. I mean, the same thing's true about the legal profession, of course, that it wasn't until we were forced to um, embrace some of these tools that we realized how much they could enhance what it is that we do, legal profession, legal education, ADR. And I'm, I'm really, I wanted to say hopeful, but we have to take this moment and shift and embrace and do things differently and evolve. Because if we don't, it's just a huge loss. The ADR community could be doing so much to assist society, profession, legal education in these moments. But sometimes I'm, I don't know if we see our role. We can. I think a lot of it has to do with the historical perspective of ODR, online dispute resolution, as this other lesser form of what we do. Um, because it's missing paraverbal, nonverbal communication, whether it's text or video-based mediation. And I think that that othering of ODR meant that the dispute resolution community sort of has missed out and is trying to now figure out what is possible. Yes. So you're, you're touching on things that I think and care a lot about. So this historical fight struggle that ADR had for legitimacy, right? Alternative is there in the name for a reason. And it's partially because to distinguish itself from formal litigation and dispute systems, but in order to gain legitimacy, historically, I've found that ADR has just had to adopt limiting principles and ethical tenets, you know, like 
from my perspective, there's this obsession with impartiality and being a neutral, like a judge is a neutral and replicating certain limitations from my perspective that are in the broader dispute system world. And when we see structural challenges in our society, the alternative systems need to be and embrace more alternative thinking <laughs> and, and be more flexible with these ethical tenets that we have kind of worshipped for such a long time. And, and now I think we're seeing it in broader society that there, there is a role for reduced impartiality <laughs> when it comes to promoting systemic change. Reduced impartiality has certain benefits. And I'm, I also share your pause in recognizing that there could be more struggles in the future. In fact, I have a paper that I'm that I, I finished writing called the impending battle for the soul of ODR because of everything you just described. Leaders in the field sometimes are embracing a lack of flexibility with ethical tenets. And that lack of flexibility rest restricts the ability to be truly transformative compared to what it has been historically. Even a society needs more flexibility and more transformation. It, it means it's ironic because <laughs> this is what we're supposed to be really good at in helping others, but it's hard for us to do it in our own field. But I also, so I think this, um, this limitation is true also in legal education and the profession yeah. that we um, we've taken this moment of looking at technology and in ADR, it's been, oh, look, I can do mediation on Zoom. And oh my gosh, I actually really like it. Right? There was just this big <laughs> Twitter thread about whether or not mediators want to go back to in-person mediation, <laughs> how much they actually liked it on Zoom. And I was like, yay. And I was like, y'all, there's so much more that we can be doing with technology. I know you've been working, Ole Deji, on um, looking at the use of things like smart contracts and blockchain technology. And Noam Ebner and I have written about you know, the use of technology in our mediations, whether they're in person or online, bringing in the internet of things, bringing in data analytics and legal yes. analytics to sort of trans transcend these binary thinking of online versus offline or facilitated versus evaluative mediation. That's, I think, if we can really look at technology more broadly as innovation yes. and really look at ways to transform what it is that we do, reimagine them. But then when you think about the theory of change, and Dinosofsky, I'm super curious what you think about this, because when you think about the theory of change, like how do you actually make change happen? Like, in some ways, we have to make small little changes from within, because those are going to be the easy wins, rather than the radical changes that we might want, <laughs> some of us might want. So I think that's uh, I think these these questions of of um, theory of change is, are incredibly important and interesting. And I I've had the opportunity together with with my closest collaborator um, Jackie Peel of Melbourne to consult for several years now with the Children's Investment Fund Foundation on a on a major grant that they've made to client Earth to seed climate change litigation in in Europe and then in Asia. And we we've 
sort of worked in this evaluator role and, and also um, advising role. And, and one of the tools we've been using in that has actually been a, a theory of change. And to, to me, what's so, so interesting about, about them when done well is that it takes you from the, the small to the big. So what I like about thinking in terms of theories of change is that at the, at the very same time, you're thinking about what is the big goal? But, but what are the different steps of, of getting to, to that goal? And so I think that, that it's not so much that we, you know, have to be realistic about the possible, which I, I certainly think is, is important as well. But I also think it's about how we are systematic and strategic, how we map a path from, I often like to think about the is to the ought, um, so what are, what are the different pieces that go into um, getting us where, closer to where we want to go, recognizing that, you know, some of the things that, that we're working to address in society are challenging problems that, you know, we're not going to quickly have solutions to. I also think about this in terms of the concrete action steps that I think are important to develop when one wants to to make change. So, um, for example, at at Penn State, you know, we we like so many schools around the country had a very raw listening session in the aftermath of of George Floyd's murder, but but that listening session became a jumping off point for us to say what are the steps that we want to take. So I was meeting with the Balsa leadership that evening and the SBA leadership the next day, so that by later that week we had a list of action steps. And, and also, you know, made a leadership gift together with our associate dean of academic affairs um, to, to move forward one of the action steps that was most important to our students, which was establishing a George Floyd Memorial Scholarship. But, but when we did that, when we created those action steps, there was a lot of intentionality in those discussions about the fact that some of the action steps we need to take are things that we can accomplish quickly and easily, like you know, creating a, 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 a much stronger diversity, equity, inclusion website, or some establishing a broader diversity committee that, that included faculty, staff, and, and a rotating group of students. Um, but some of the things that we wanted to think together about were things that, that were going to take real time and thought to, to work through as a community, such as, you know, how we have greater transparency and, and processes around when people raise concerns that, that may not uh, be the types of concerns that are going to go into university reporting, but are, but are things that, that we need to find a way of working through. And so just, just like in a theory of change, how there's, there's a sequential set of things, I also think that as we build our plans for change, that it's important that we have things that we can do immediately, but recognize not everything can be done immediately. And, and some things take us time to do right. Hari, I, I, I might have I said this earlier. Listening to you speak, I hear like an, a seasoned ADR professional speak. <laughs> because what you're saying is with the theory of change, you seek to understand others and then you act. And I, 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 that's like just a cornerstone of the work we do. And it's, it's not just acting in and of itself. It's understanding others' perspectives, recognizing the competing like stakeholder interests and using that to act in a inclusive and effective way. And, and so 
I may have said this before, but I'm just really excited for your your deanship because it might not be explicit, but you were certainly working with many of the positive ADR skill sets that I and Allison try to teach our students. And, and I'm just, I'm hopeful that that uh, these skill sets will, will be positive and helpful for Northwestern Law School. And another thing that comes up is, is just in the legal education piece. And Allison mentioned this earlier, like technology in and of itself is a disruptive force. And allowing students to think in disruptive ways can be so critical for innovation. Like we want law students to be innovators and we also want them to understand how innovation works, to work with innovation. So something that I'm just thinking about is how in our pedagogy, how we engage with students, law students, how we can allow them to be more comfortable and open in embracing disruption and thinking like Hara, you've mentioned this before where you, you described yourself to me as a lawyer that thinks like an engineer. And I think part of thinking like an engineer and also a lawyer is just being open to maybe less on the lawyer front. I take that back on the engineering front, being open to a bit of disruption and working with it and, and seeking to understand it. Uh, so my question for you both is just how we engage with students to embrace positive disruption while they are still students. I, I think it's a it's a really interesting question, and 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 I you know I appreciate your your kind words. I have, I have so much respect for for the work that that both you and Allison do. And and one thing that I I wanted to to add and in, in listening to you is is one of the things that's really hit me. In, in my leadership work is that it, it's so incredibly important for our, our action to be grounded in, in, in listening and hearing. But, but I think that it's also, it's important to recognize that as important as listening and hearing is, that, that, that it actually, you know, has to be accompanied by action or becomes very, very painful, right? So action without listening and hearing is problematic, but, but the converse is also problematic. So it's interesting the way you frame the question, how, how we train students to be disruptive. Um, because I, I think that the way I often frame it is, is how do we prepare our students to lead in a rapidly evolving environment? Um, and, the, and the reason that I view it slightly differently is because I think that, that, that part of being effective leaders in this environment is recognizing that some things need to be disrupted, but but some things don't. And that part of how we move forward is trying to understand what is valuable in what we've been doing, just like we need to assess what's been valuable in the pivots we've, we've made for COVID. And what do we need to change? So I think having a theory of change and an approach to, to, to leadership in, in which we can both acknowledge what is good in, in what has been done and recognize there, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of things that need to change is at least, I think, how I see a, a path forward. I think the question of how we prepare students for that, though, is, is in one of the most important questions facing 
legal education and, and frankly, education more broadly today. I've been struck over my four years as a dean that when I talk to practitioners and they say to me, students aren't prepared when they come out of law school, that they're never talking about doctrinal knowledge. They're always talking about problem solving skills. And so part of what I find so interesting about the, the, the work that all of you all have been doing to, to create new models is that I think it's crucially important that, that we provide students with multiple avenues to develop those, those problem-solving skills. Because what we really need in a ch- time of change is, is a nimbleness that, that legal education hasn't always traditionally taught. And, and so, you know, I think clearly um, experiential courses help with that, courses that teach you know, business skills to lawyers help with that. Courses that teach leadership skills and professionalism skills help with that. But, you know, ultimately, the, the other thing that I think helps is, is these opportunities. And Northwestern has some really interesting, innovative courses where law students pair together with students from other disciplines to do problem solving work. Because I also think that exposure to be part of a team and a team that's not just lawyers helps lawyers think about their role as problem solvers together with a team. So I think there are a lot of different things we can do in the way we approach education. And then I guess the final thing I would say on this is one of the things that's been crucially important to me as I've worked with students as a dean um, is recognizing that our students' leadership in the law school is, is really important. And so you know, our um, students have been key partners to me in whether it's creating our strategic plan or working through um, our COVID response or thinking about how we need to do better in diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and, and what it would mean to get there. And so I also think that part of how we prepare students to lead is we recognize them for the leaders that they already are and provide them with opportunities in law school for, for that kind of um, collaborative leadership. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. <laughs> I'm just sitting here. This is the only problem with podcasts is that you can't see in Oli Deji, I bet you're doing the exact same things. Heads nodding. Yes. <laughs> fist pumps. <laughs> So great. It's so great. I I mean, obviously, yes, 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 yes. We have a few different of these courses that Dinosovsky is talking about. And but our innovation lab is like this amazing example of law students doing problem solving, legal research, people skills, because they're working in teams with individuals from our school of engineering. It is it's the holy grail. It is everything. And it's just, it's a great example of what we could be doing. I think, you know, this idea of what we teach and how we teach. And I love what Hari just shared about student leadership, because I think if we can give more voice to students in the classroom to identify dissonance with what the doctrine is saying and their lived experience, opportunities to fail, to learn from failures, you know, that single exam model just feels like a missed opportunity for students to learn. And then of course, the what we teach, uh, the problem solving skills, the listening, the curiosity, and uh, trust will move, will use that we maybe we can use that as a transition to talk a little bit about the delta model which i'm curious to get your all's feedback on and sort of reality check me because i am increasingly convinced that some aspects of this delta model 
can help provide the foundation to do, to make these changes or to reflect these needs. Yeah, that's a perfect transition to the Delta model. Very briefly, I, I did want to say that I what, what you shared with learning from failure as a law student just really resonated with me. And it is paradoxical that we have this one exam model for each class, because to be honest, I think when the class is over and you've taken that one exam, it's very rare that you go back and review what the exam was about. Like the class is over now. So there's no need to learn from any mistakes you made. And, and I can see a lot of value in, in transitioning away from that model. And I also recognize the benefit, like dealing with pressure is a good thing. Learning how to manage stress and pressure is a good thing. And, and having one exam kind of builds that pressure and it teaches students to manage that pressure in a healthy way, hopefully. And yet there are trade-offs, which is like learning from mistakes and failure that I, I think that model overlooks. So with the Delta model, before we get into feedback, why don't we just do an overview of that, <laughs> Allison? Do you, do you want to describe like what the Delta model is and how it relates to legal education? I, I would love to. It, this, the Delta model was developed at a working conference that Dan Lena hosted um, about three years ago by a small group of individuals. And it is in its most simplest form, it is a visualization of the holistic skill set that is necessary to succeed in the 21st century. The visualization is a triangle or the Greek letter delta to signify change that's happening in the profession and society more generally. The base of the triangle is those traditional legal knowledge and skills, the practice, it's what we do. And the right side of the triangle is that how we do it, the, the process of delivering legal services efficiently and effectively. And the left side of the triangle is the who. It's our ability to understand and relate to our clients, our colleagues, and ourselves. So uh, we've labeled it the people. And I'm just thinking about some things that Hari had mentioned about how we build off what is valuable, but what we've been doing that works. And one of the things I love about the Delta model is that it, it includes the practice as the base. So it's, it says the doctrine is obviously important, right? It's the core of what we do. It is what we do, the law. And so it's, it is visualized in there and the recognition that increasingly uh, technology is playing a role in how we deliver our services. And then these problem-solving skills that we were just talking about, the curiosity, the listening, entrepreneurial mindset is included on that left side of the triangle. And so it says to the how we assess that a single exam, you're right, it does provide that high stakes pressure that is going to, you're going to experience in practice. So it's not that we should get rid of it entirely. It's that we shouldn't rely on it solely. So the same thing with the Delta model, the practice is important. It's what we do, obviously. And it can't be the only thing we focus on. So if people are going back to law schools and saying students are not prepared to practice, the doctrine, like they know the, they, they've passed the bar 
um, which tests their knowledge of the doctrine, that part we're, we're maybe we're doing okay. You talk about ways to do it better, but we're doing it okay. It's the other two sides that maybe we need to change, uh, shift, uh, include, add, I don't know. So in its basic form, the Delta is just a triangle visualization of a holistic set of skills that we need to succeed in the 21st century as legal professionals. Practice the process, the people. It's backed by established research, things like Shelton's Edicts 26 Predictors of Success, IELTS's Foundations of Practice. But Thomson Reuters also sponsored some original research to validate the model. So, as a visualization of skills or competency areas that are important, I think that it does a really great job. We've got some new formulations, iterations of the model that Kat Moon and I've been working on that I feel like are the things that allow this model now to support our profession, um, organizations and individuals in these moments of uncertainty and change that we were experiencing before COVID. We certainly experienced in the midst of this pandemic, um, but that we will be continuously um, faced with. And so a model that the I use the word nimble, like this model has to reflect those changes that are taking place very quickly and that our profession needs to be nimble in how we respond, reflect, and then proactively ensure that our profession is set up for success to be able to do those new skills. Yeah. So I will just share that I learned of the Delta model in June of 2020, when I was working at RSI, and I thought it was amazing. I, I, I it, like the conceptualization of the model itself just brought a lot of things that I had been thinking about struggling to formulate into more concrete terms. And going back to what Hari mentioned, you know, I, I think like law school does a good job, it can do better, uh, but it does a good job with the bottom of the Delta with teaching the law. Uh, something that I've noticed in my current capacity right now. So, so I am like a, a coach and advisor to social entrepreneurs that are focused on climate change initiatives at the, at Harvard's innovation lab and the law students that I get to interact with there, uh, they're, they're law students. So they're not lawyers, something that is a growth opportunity for them. And one of the reasons why they seek out the innovation lab is to develop the left side of the Delta model on the, the piece around personal effectiveness and interpersonal communication. And I think also in a clinical environment, having a client, just like my students at the innovation lab, having a client that you are responsible for, that you're trying to problem solve with and on behalf of is really important. And I see a lot of benefit that at least my students get out of those experiences. And hopefully when they're first year associates or doing public interest work after law school, hopefully those skills from the left side of the Delta model that they developed in law school will directly translate into those circumstances in, in their young professional environments versus if all you did was attend black letter law classes, right? I, I, I see a, a lot of benefit for these students that are responsible for, for clients. Hari, do you have any thoughts on the Delta model? 
I do have some thoughts on the Delta model um, and um, very much in line with, with what you've just been saying and, and, and what Allison's been saying. I and mean, I think we, may I just want to take a moment and say that I just really appreciate the, the work that Kat and others have done to develop this model and, and really agree with the assessment, which I think goes back to my saying that when we think about preparing our students to lead, it, it's not that we want to you know, not all of that is disruptive. And I think that the Delta model captures that well by, you know, as Allison discussed in, in the practice, kind of including some of these traditional competencies. And I agree that there are ways in which we can think it more innovatively about how we teach those things. You know, I, there's, there's, we're doing some intentional thinking right now at Northwestern about supporting faculty who want to think about flipping their classroom uh, more. I, I think, you know, this question that that was was in, in some ways driven by by law schools, you know, being pushed to to really not just give one final exam, but think about um, how we provide assessment of the course of a semester, which I, I agree with Allison leads also better to an ongoing learning model has great value. So I, I do think there's work to be done in the in the practice side of the triangle, but the places that we we really have work to do, I completely agree, are on the process and the people side of the triangle. And of course, the brilliance of this model is that it breaks down what those other skills are. And, and I think that there are skills that, that law schools are increasingly recognizing are important, but, but varying in the extent to which they're, they're teaching. So, you know, the process set of skills about project management and technology and business fundamentals. I think you are seeing a trend line in legal education towards teaching business skills for lawyers more in these kinds of project management skills and technology skills, but, but we're not fully there. I started um, my first year as, as dean a few years ago now, um, a tech and innovation dean's uh, dialogue group that meets once a month. And, and every other month, um, we, we also created a parallel group of tech leaders and every other month they, they merge. And so, you know, some of these questions about what does it mean to teach technology in law school have been very active points of conversation. Also, how can we learn from the past year and collaborate more among law schools, even under existing ABA rules has, has been a key point. Law schools are obviously constrained right now by, by fairly antiquated rules on distance education um, by law schools, but, but not necessarily in, in teaching technology, which is increasingly recognized as a core competency um, by, by states of lawyers. Um, and one of the things that, that we found when I was at Penn State in our work in the Legal Tech Virtual Lab was that, you know, we had initially focused on sort of these cutting edge tech skills, right? So exposing our students to, to new AI-powered legal tools. Um, but what we began to recognize is that, is that law students often come into law school without basic technology skills that are important for practice, like using Office or using PDFs. And so I think thinking about technology in a multifaceted way from emerging cutting-edge technology, but also making sure that we prepare them for the, some of the really basic technologies of practices is, is really important. Similarly, you know, these, these people skills and, and what it means to effectively teach them, I think, is, is, is a hugely important question. Um, and, and making sure that we also graduate culturally competent lawyers is incredibly, incredibly important and a part of those people skills. I've long believed in, in my job that about 
uh, 90% of it is, is, is about emotional intelligence. And, you know, my favorite, there are all sorts of books that are more explicitly about leadership. My favorite leadership book for a long time has been Emotional Intelligence 2.0, which, which actually breaks out the, the ways in which you can improve a, along um, each of the four areas they identify, self-awareness, uh, self-management, other awareness, and other management. So I think, you know, that, that the Delta model is just spot on and thinking about what are the competencies we need for a legal professional. And I think that the challenge for, for law schools is to think about how we bring these kinds of skills into the way we teach, which have not been sort of part of the traditional Langdellian model of, of legal education, which we, we haven't moved as far away from as, as, as one might one might have thought we, we would in this time of change in, in so many law schools around the country. Very true. So, so I'm always on the hunt for book recommendations. So this is Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by Travis Bradbury, correct? That one? Correct. Actually, when you do a search, there's more than one book of that title, but it's but it's, it's that particular emotional intelligence 2.0. Awesome. I'm adding it to my list. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So many thoughts and just so little time. One thing that I wanted to perhaps share or transition to is about climate change. So on, I believe it was either the 9th, of August or the 8th of August, the UN issued this report on climate change. And part of the report stated that it's unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. And I know that there, there have been some people disputing that and, um, and that the UN has previously never been unequivocal about it, uh, but now there is more certainty and another thing this report raised was that even if countries and regions were to take immediate actions to cut emissions, there are some damages that have been done to the atmosphere, I believe they stated, that are irreversible. So when I was skimming this report, I, I typically am a very optimistic person, and yet this report made me really sad and afraid because I have family in Nigeria, coastal Nigeria in Lagos, and every season, every rainy season, more and more parts of the Lagos coast is just getting swept up with floods. And we're seeing it throughout the world and it's happening on a broader scale than in the past. And then Maybe the optimism came out that I, I thought, wait a second, I'm going to be speaking with Hari Osofsky in a couple of days. And she is an expert in this field and has published, who's counting, but maybe published more than 50 law review articles on this exact topic. So Hari, I, I just wanted to ask you, one, it, whether you've read the UN report, it's it's a long one, or whether you've skimmed it in any capacity, and, and just generally how you're thinking about legal approaches that can be implemented to, to addressing climate change, and especially for communities that are suffering from climate change. 
I really appreciate your raising the problem of climate change. I do think that when we think about the problems facing our society um, that both have the ability to create profound inequality, um, worsening inequality, and um, that that really have impacts for future generations. Our our inability to make the progress that we need to on climate change is is a foundational problem. And, um, And, you know, I think the newest report only underscores the the urgency of our of our making progress in in cutting our greenhouse gas emissions. When we think about climate change science, I think that that I, I actually think for a long time there has been a, a very strong scientific consensus that the, the big picture of climate change is, is happening. I think where the science gets interesting is when we scale down. So I I really appreciated my geography PhD getting the chance to study climate change science with a, an author of the IPCC report. And I think that there's there's no question that climate change is happening in, in sort of the, you know, there's there's such a strong scientific consensus on on that. I recognize that the political dialogue can sometimes be fraught. And I also think there's a strong scientific consensus on what are some of the impacts that are clearly being caused by climate change, right? So we have highest levels of certainty around things like sea level rise and heat waves. You know, with severe storms, which often get people talking about climate change, we we have clear knowledge that um, the risk of severe storms is increased by climate change, though any particular severe storm, um, it, you know, the, the scientific linkages are less clear. But the reason I'm talking about science at scale is because I think it's important for um, us to recognize that that one of the areas of real progress in the science has been on some of this, this smaller scale science, um, even over the past decade, because I think you know, where we tend to have, have, have a real understanding is at these large scales, but people often want to understand the small scales. Is this emission right here, right now, causing this impact right here, right now? But I think the question is, you know, what, what do we do now to, to get at this problem? So, you know, years ago, we, we used to talk about preventing climate change. We, we no longer can talk about preventing climate change because it's already happening. And so we talk about mitigating climate change and the measures we take to mitigate it. Similarly, you know, we we used to talk about adapting to climate change. And, and it's now gone far enough in some places that we instead need to talk about loss and damage because there are changes that are happening that are too severe for, for people to adapt to. It's obviously a, an important step forward. The United States is now rejoining the community of nations and, and, and making commitments under the Paris Agreement. But I think it's also important to recognize that even though the, the Paris Agreement had a, a keeping um, the temperature rise below two degrees and with, with an aspirational goal of 1.5 degrees, because really, if we want to prevent the most severe impacts, that's where we need to go. We are nowhere close to getting to that, that two degree goal. And so we have to think really creatively about how we get there. And, and, and I think governmental action is only part of it. So one of the ways in which I think our approach to working on the problem of climate change reflects some of these inclusive governance approaches that I, that I think have value it is that 
you know, when the nations of the world convene, there are also what are known as these side meetings where business leaders come together, where local government leaders come together. And, and they often create voluntary agreements that go along with the um, nation state agreements. Now, there's no question that everything needs to ramp up the nationally determined commitments, the businesses commitments, the, the local government commitments in order for us to get anywhere near where we need to to close the gap. But but what's exciting to see is the ways in which with this multifaceted problem that really needs work at multiple levels of government, that needs work from non-governmental actors, that involving um, a broader range of people in, in thinking and, and entities and thinking about how we move forward than our traditional sort of Westphalian model of international law where sovereign nation states go and make treaties um, which was our initial kind of, I think, model of climate change. I think this growing recognition of the role of these different kinds of entities um, is, is crucial to our making progress in this problem. Yeah. One, one thing that I've been reflecting on is whether now, both because of the UN report, but also because we're in the midst of a pandemic and between now and 1918, right, there's only been one other pandemic. And before this pandemic, I feel like there was a certain, there was some amount of complacency in terms of being prepared for something that this structurally disruptive. And sometimes I wonder whether now that we have gone through and are still going through something as disruptive as a pandemic, whether our minds are kind of open to the possibilities of other disruptive forces like climate change and I guess I, I was curious for both of you whether you feel that now that we've witnessed a pandemic in our lifetime, whether that makes us more open and more fearful of the impacts of climate change's disruption. So I'm not convinced that it does without our really having good strategies for, for decreasing our polarization right now and for finding ways together um, in, in how we tackle um, problems like, like climate change, our public health crisis, and, and other legal problems at the law-STEM interface. So I wrote a piece a few years ago with, with Jackie Peel looking at energy partisanship, asking the question, you know, when do Democrats and Republicans come together? And, you know, what does that look like? You know, how do we help foster it? And um, the answer is, is not never, as sometimes people joke when they hear this project. But, but I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that a lot of our strategies to trying to persuade one another aren't, aren't very effective. So a lot of times people take sort of a, a information sharing approach, um, which says, you know, if I just sort of provide people with more information on the problem, um, we will come to agreement. And, and instead, what we found at least is, is, that, is that if you come to places where there are sort of shared values, uh, and there are shared values that, that, that you can get farther. So um, the, the place that you see the strongest bipartisanship on climate change is where there's true economic alignment. 
right? Republican governors in high wind states support wind energy. Lots of, you know, lots of, of Republicans and Democrats wanted Tesla to come build their its battery factory there. You also see after there's been a natural disaster like, like Superstorm Sandy and instances of bipartisanship, though, though those tend to be time limited. But we also found that when you scale down, you can you can get to greater levels of agreement. So, you know, local elections don't tend to be partisan. And so uh, you often get more practical at a local level than you are at other levels. And, and corporations also can have a constructive role to play. Um, I think it's important for us to think about corporations in a in a more differentiated sense than we often do. Even among fossil energy corporations, there are very different types of corporations and, and understanding kind of what, what motivates and drives them and, you know, and, and, and how they, they fit into the, the picture is in, incredibly important. The other thing that I've found, and I've, because I've worked on climate change for many years and sometimes uh, in, you know, environments in which I, I meet a lot of, of climate change skeptics, I also think that that what I've found is that, you know, if you if you start from a place in, in having these conversations, if you start from a place of, of respect that's really grounded in a, a complex understanding of the science, you often these conversations can often go well. So what, what I've found, at least, is, is that when you when you sort of acknowledge that climate change science is complex, that's something that, that everybody intuitively knows, um, rather than just sort of you know, I think sometimes people like to quote some of the most alarmist stuff out of the climate change science, and it is it is very concerning. Um, but I think acknowledging that it's complex science and that some of it is 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 risk analysis when you're you're looking at sort of these different kinds of impacts. But but often if you frame the conversation that way, you can get to the point of saying, so if, if we can all acknowledge that there's, you know, whether we have different political perspectives on this, that there's at least some risk that this problem is is, is happening and worsening. Um, and obviously, I, I believe there's a very, very strong risk, um, right? But but if, if we can come to that, the question is, how do we behave um, from a regulatory perspective in, in getting at this problem? I also think it's important, and, and we've seen this in the public health crisis, and, and we see this in climate change, and we see this in cybersecurity, and we see this in IP, to recognize that, that law often deals very poorly with fast-moving science and technology. Our regulatory mechanisms are not well designed to understand that. And it's partially because sometimes the people who are creating that law and policy don't fully understand the science and technology. It's also just that, you know, we have traditional patterns of, of, of what we do. And so one of the things that, that I think is, is incredibly important, whether you're talking about the public health crisis or talking about climate change, is that you bring together a multidisciplinary team so that the way we think about law and policy can be, can be informed by the emerging science and technology. So when we form our climate change policy, when we think about what are our strategies to move the needle on emissions, we're, we're doing it in a way that, that really allows us to take into account um, the latest science and technology. And to be clear, this isn't always about deep political polarization. It can sometimes be about sort of just long-standing regulatory rules, right? So for example, in a lot of localities, there, there are pretty restrictive rules around, you know, the way, you know, around requiring people to, to modify existing buildings up to energy efficiency standards, right? Often, even if they exist for new buildings. So I think there's all sorts of subtle places where, where law can be a better tool that, that might not be at all controversial that, that we need to work on. 
I'll just, I'm not an expert in these areas, so I can't speak to the specifics, but I love Hari's understanding and pointing out the need for us to work in these interdisciplinary settings, the problems with sort of the lack of agility in, especially like the legal profession and being able to adapt to these changing moments and not to be a broken record, but I, that for me, the Delta model comes in right in these moments to say that we need structures that can be more agile, that can reflect these changes as they're happening. Instead of saying, you know, a bar exam takes five years to test any new subject before we would change, add, delete it from the bar exam. We can't test things for our newly licensed lawyers that is emerging. And so as these disruptive forces, whatever they are, the pandemic, climate change, the reckoning with racial injustice, our structure within the legal profession needs to be more agile to reflect those disruptive forces so that we're ensuring that our profession is prepared to handle it. So whether that's adding or prioritizing cultural competence on the people side or regulatory admin on the practice side or I, you know, I'm this, I'm just going really simple here, but like the, the use of office processes on the process side that reduces the environmental impact and carbon footprint, all of those things, we, we need a structure that can reflect those disruptive forces as they're happening, not 10, 15 years later. And if, if you wouldn't mind my piggybacking on that, you know, we haven't talked much about the bar exam and I, I think it's important that we do. Um, Let's do it. Because there, I mean, some I think some significant problems right now in, in how we license lawyers that the pandemic and, and the challenges around the bar exam during the pandemic have only helped to, I think, highlight. I think we need to do some real thinking about why we have an exam that requires people to memorize material that they may or may not use in practice in the specific substance for two months after law school in order to pass this exam, um, as has been you know, well documented by, by many colleagues. This, this model is one that is very, very hard for people who whose socioeconomics are such that they really need to work and they can't take this kind of long break for, for, from work economically. And so I think we have to query why after three years of law school, we, we set up that kind of a, a structure, which interrelates to the second question, which is, is this test testing competency to be a lawyer? And, and, and if not, you know, what, what would that look like? And, you know, and, and then asking more fundamentally, you know, there, it does not appear that there have been increased competency issues in states that have um, forms of diploma privilege and a, a set of other ways that people can get licensed through through sort of a, a rigorous diploma privilege process. And so I, I think it's really crucial that as we think about what can we learn from all of this, I, I think we haven't just learned that the bar can go remote when it needs to, though, though often with a, a range of, of technical difficulties and, and, and really worrying things sometimes in terms of quality issues with, with, with that transition. But, but also, you know, what, what do we need to have to assess competencies of, of lawyers? What should that look like? And, and particularly as states have moved towards a, a UBE model, so it's more uniform, you know, what, what should we be more uniformly testing if we're going to have a test? Yeah, well, great points. I'll add, I, I took the bar last year and mine was remote. 
And the, the technology that the bar administrators were using struggled to recognize my face because I'm, I'm probably because I'm black, I'm assuming. And many other people of color shared that similar sentiment. So it's just something as micro as that can lead to delays in actually taking a section of the bar, which is what I experienced. And when from like a system design perspective, we're always thinking about which voices are actually being represented. And you you raised the point on economically disadvantaged groups, you know, like these groups struggle by necessity to take time out of their professional careers to take this exam. And it, it has nothing to do with their level of interest or the capabilities, it's just meeting the bare necessities of life and being able to provide for family if, if, you're, if you have one while you're taking the bar exam. So something that I just think, think about is for the organizers of the bar exam, there, I would place a challenge on them and an opportunity for the broader legal profession is to have more economically disadvantaged groups be represented in those conversations. They, it would be great if they were actually on the board, but at least having their voices have greater representation than, than has happened in the past, I think would lead to pretty noteworthy changes in the administration or even the existence of the bar. I think that's an awesome idea. And I'll share with you guys that I just had my first meeting with a content scope committee for the National Conference of Bar Examiners, where they are talking about changes to the bar, not just in what subjects or format, but also the skills that they would be testing. And this idea of whose input is is an important one. And I guess I'm kind of excited to say I can go back and tell them directly. <laughs> yes. And Will, you know it. I completely agree. I think these are important. I mean, I think these are important conversations. And I also really appreciate your sharing your, your lived experience of the bar. And I'm, I'm sorry that was your experience. And I've heard this issue with other remote bars that, you know, that there's a bias created by the technology and its inability to, to recognize people properly with darker skin. So um, I, it's something that I've, I've heard from others as well. But I absolutely think that, you know, we, you know, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that you're doing this work, Allison. And I am I think it's it's incredibly important for us to think about how we prepare competent lawyers in law school, but also sort of then what's the process of licensing after we get through law school and make sure that we have a test that is that is fair and that actually test competency in in the ways that that we need it to. Again, if we're taking a testing approach at all, rather than a, a sort of thinking creatively about diploma privilege. I yeah. love that. So this conversation has dealt a lot with reassessing different things. Um, and so I have one final question, which could be difficult, and I hope it's easy. Final question is what you believe about the future of technology and dispute resolution or the law more broadly that very few people in your industry believe. I'm not sure that there are a lot of things I believe about law and technology that that very few people believe. Um, 
I think that a, a pretty wide range of people would, would share my assessment that part of the complexity of preparing for the future is about unknown unknowns. And, you know, uh, as, as Donald Rumsfeld said, and, and, you know, I think that that part of why it's so important to set up these processes in which we are continuing to learn and setting a learning mindset and recognizing that we need to experiment and we need to experiment and fail sometimes, because if we don't create a space in which we can innovate and, and learn um, and fail, then we won't get where we need to go. But, but and I think p- part of why it's important to be process oriented isn't just about my, my, my value set about why you know, in, inclusive leadership is, is, is so important, but it's also because I don't think any of us can meaningfully predict where this is all going exactly. And I think part of why models like the Delta model have value is that we know that this is evolving. And so I, I think as we look forward and think about law and think about technology, I think what's really important is that we be open to the fact that these these evolving technologies have impacts in in how we should approach teaching people law and 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 what practice looks like and and how we might provide legal services to bridge the access to justice gap in in ways that are innovative recognizing of course that we have to bridge the access to technology gap too so i think there are a lot of opportunities for us to think really creatively but part of it is that we need to have a mindset that recognizing it recognizes that there will be continuous evolution and that and that we don't get stuck in another set of of kind of rigid ideas about things but rather that we we set up approaches that help us learn. Mm. You're here. <laughs> I think I don't really have anything else to add cuz I think that is exactly right. I mean, I'm happy to say I think with leadership like Hari's that the profession has started to look at these issues and that COVID certainly forced our hand. The question is whether or not we will shift that mindset it's needed. So I love what Harry just shared. Allison, I can't let you off the hook that easy. What do you think about the future of technology and dispute resolution, since we're both in the same industry, that our peers don't believe. And it could be about the ethics of some of these systems. It could be about anything, but I I know there's a lot there and I just want to bring that up. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll go there. Um, I would say that I think it, I think that the profession, both the legal profession and ADR just are thinking too narrowly that we have really focused on the use of technology as a way to replicate um, things. So whether in the profession, it is the um, expert system in ADR, it's uh, the automated ODR, let alone the video um, conference, instead of really thinking about really transforming things. So I know I said a little bit of this before, but I'll be more specific. So For instance, the public versus private debate that you have a choice as a litigant to pursue private settlement or public settlement. And that we we value each of those for different reasons. You do a pro con and you make a decision about which one, but it doesn't need to be so binary that we can 
allow people the chance to have private settlement um, for the values that, that it provides them while still capturing enough anonymized data that we can still inform the public about harms that are taking place. Yes. Um, and that's going to be the technology, I think, that that we need to be looking at. But you know, I'm not a technologist. I call myself just tech curious. And so a lot of it <laughs> is beyond me. But I but you hear computer scientists talk about things that are possible. You see things taking place in other industries. And I just our industry, both legal and more specifically ADR, I think just looks at it way too narrowly. Thank you, Allison. I, I knew it. I knew it. And I, I don't think it'll be surprising, but I, I do agree a lot. And there listeners has... read his article. <laughs> you know, like Colin Rule and Amy Schmitz, they they've written and yeah, there there have been a handful of others that have written about how early stages and I'd even say today in how ODR is implemented, it's kind of just replicating in-person systems onto cyberspace and the digital world. And there's just so much there that if we just seek to replicate, so much will be missed. And from my perspective, I view it as the access to justice challenge because there are a lot of people that haven't been interested in engaging with these in-person systems that are replicated onto online systems. They want more confidentiality, but they also want a certain amount of flexibility so that confidential or anonymized information can be aggregated without compromising anonymity in a way that suits their interests, right? If you are if you are a tenant versus a commercial or large scale real estate investment trust, for example, uh, you have all these information asymmetries and prior tenants in eviction cases have had information asymmetries. But if you're able to aggregate that information in a way that still respects privacy and share it with both parties, but it's going to benefit the party with less information a lot more. I, I, I just think something as simple and concrete at that as that would be a huge benefit for access to justice and greater equity and how courts and dispute resolution systems are engaging with, with these challenges. So, sorry, let me, let me pull it back because you both are phenomenal. And I just wanted to thank you for taking the time out to chat with me. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited to see Dean Osofsky. I'm really excited to see what's going to be shaking at Northwestern and during your tenure. And I'm, I'm wishing you the very best of luck. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I should say, I mean, what's so exciting, of course, is, is, is the we, though, um, which is that we just have such extraordinary people at Northwestern in the law school and across the university and, and beyond and our alumni to, to collaborate with. And so I'm, I'm just really excited about what we can all build together. Yeah. Well, thank you both and take care.